true to form, April has brought us showers. This week has been damp, but the rainy spring month has also brought a whole lot of other news to the capital region. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Quote, no rational person wants to live in upstate New York. It's cold, it's snowy, its infrastructure is 100 years out of date. We'll look back at our first year of the Times Union in the Hudson Valley. Hudson and Kingston emerged as the metro locations that experienced the biggest influx of relocations in the country last year. And we'll do a little jig. And by that, I mean we'll talk to three local Irish dancers who are headed to this week's World Championships in Belfast. It's often described as a dance where it's body of ice, feet of fire. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we're back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk top headlines, and we will start with Statehouse news. I'm experiencing a little bit of deja vu here because I think this happened to us last year, but we recorded our headline segment, and then, you know, seemingly five minutes later, the governor announced that the budget negotiations had ended and there will be a budget. So uh, we are re-recording. The segment's so nice, they recorded it twice. Yes, The long-awaited day has arrived. So Governor Kathy Hochul emerged uh, at about 4.15 and told reporters that a a framework agreement uh, had been reached on a $220 billion plan that she described as a bold vision with a fiscally responsible approach. And it does include significant amounts of, of course, economic policy, but also social policy, too. Many of the latter kind of held up the, uh, the the negotiation a week past the deadline, which, you know, hits at the end of March. The new fiscal year begins April 1st. Uh, it's take a little extra time. I appreciate everybody's patience, but I will tell you it was worth the time to get this right for New Yorkers. There'll be a suspension of the gas tax that's going to begin in June and run through the rest of the year. Alcohol to go will be made permanent. You know, it was something that restaurants really uh, love during the pandemic. There's an expansion of childcare, a large five-year infrastructure plan, raises for home healthcare workers, $4.2 billion environmental bond act, tax cuts for the middle class, and lots of changes to public safety laws. That was really one of the big stickers, uh, including changes to uh, what's going to be covered or what's, what's a bail eligible offense, as well as changes coming to the discovery process in criminal cases and a continuation of Kendra's law. 
Stick close to our Capital Confidential section at timesunion.com for all the latest there. Let's move on to some somewhat tragic news. Actually, it's completely tragic. Um, we had two major vehicle crashes in the region this week. Can you give us a quick summary of what happened? Yeah, sort of taking them in chronological order. On Monday evening, a car loaded with a half dozen teenagers in a stolen vehicle fled a traffic stop in Arbor Hill in Albany, continued at a fairly high rate of speed, struck another vehicle a couple of blocks away, continued to flee, ultimately collided with a building in the warehouse district that was downhill from where this incident occurred. The incident beginning to end took less than two minutes and tragically left a 13-year-old boy who was a passenger in the car suffering from fatal injuries. He died not long after that, was declared dead at the hospital. Complicating uh, things were the fact that the 16-year-old driver of the car, a girl, had been involved in an armed robbery two years earlier. And so now there are all kinds of questions surrounding whether or not the police followed protocol. Officers were told to break off the pursuit of this vehicle. It's clear from poll cameras that they continued to follow the vehicle, whether or not it was a hot pursuit or not is still under investigation. And also the question of how much, if any, supervision was the alleged driver of the vehicle under since uh, this involvement with law enforcement, her involvement in this crime two years ago. Uh, The state attorney general's office has used its power to investigate fatal incidents between unarmed individuals and police to see if uh, everything was above board or whether there is, in fact, any law enforcement um, culpability here. But uh, a terrible tragedy, a 13-year-old, you know, the, the mind just beggars. And then on Wednesday, a terrible crash on the highway between Albany and Schenectady in the eastbound lane of I-90, an Amazon truck, delivery truck, was unable to stop Um, for traffic congestion, struck five vehicles and uh, two were left dead. This, of course, is coming as there's a great deal of national discussion about the conditions that Amazon delivery uh, people work under and, of course, amid a a unionization effort at some Amazon sites as well. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another story that we've uh, been following for a little while now, almost two weeks, a local high school English teacher. She vanished on March 26th, was last seen in Lee, Massachusetts. The search for Megan Marone continues. So can you give us the latest? Yeah, as you noted, it's an absolute mystery and uh, an aggrieved family. Marone's family is offering a $50,000 reward for information that leads to her safe return. She uh, last communicated with her family on March 25th. Uh, Nothing appeared untoward. She was an energetic hiker and was apparently headed for the beautiful Berkshires trails around um, Lee. And uh, it absolutely appears to have vanished into thin air. And authorities have mounted a really 
robust search, but so far it has turned up nothing. So uh, obviously a community very much eager and hopeful that there will be some some word on what exactly happened here. Absolutely. Stay tuned for the latest on timesunion.com. One last thing to ask you. It's a question that columnist Chris Churchill posed in one of his pieces this week, a rather bold headline and a question that kind of hits at some of our very souls. Is it irrational to love upstate New York? What's up with that? Yeah, he was responding to a commentary that John Podhoritz, who is a uh, conservative uh, writer, he is actually the son of conservative intellectual royalty. He uh, said on a recent podcast for Commentary magazine that, quote, no rational person wants to live in upstate New York. It's cold, it's snowy, its infrastructure is 100 years out of date. And so, ouch. Yeah, yeah. Shots fired, as they say. Um, our own Chris Churchill uses this opportunity to uh, take some sharp practice on Mr. Podhoritz, noting that he's a denizen of New York City and it will continue, I fear slash hope, the uh, smack talk wars between the five boroughs and upstate. But there you go. Uh, Chris obviously is an advocate for upstate in all its uh, gritty glory. And certainly in early April, <laughs> it can seem grittier than uh, that at, at other times of the year. But, you know, Chris loves to live here. I love to live here. I don't live in New York, in New York City. I've lived in New York City. It's fine. But I like being closer to the Adirondacks. You and me both. I did my time down there and plenty of time up here, and I couldn't agree more. All right, Casey, we will check back in with you next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. A year ago this month, the Times Union expanded its coverage area in a big way. For the last 12 months, we've been covering the people, places, and issues of the Hudson Valley. And that's from Greene and Columbia counties down south to Orange and Putnam. Editorial director Tracy Ziemer led the charge. I caught up with her this week to take a look back at our journalism in this historic region. We've been learning a lot about our audience in the last year. And we know that our audience loves Instagram, uh, our social platform that tends to be our, our strongest performer. They love transportation stories, real estate, crime, and really, you know, stories about extraordinary people doing ordinary things and ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Let's talk some specific examples of stories. Give me a couple that made the most impact in the past year with our readers. You know, it's funny because the Hudson Valley has been, it's a favorite home for generations of locals, right? But as well as second homeowners. And that volume got turned way up in the pandemic when the Valley found an influx of urbanites who were leaving New York City for literally greener pastures up here. And it really created um, extremes, right? Population fluctuations, housing squeeze. So as you might expect, you know, real estate has become a really big coverage area for us. And that's really from all angles. So trend reports, you know, stories about locals pushing back against development, Airbnb limitations across areas as towns try to get creative about finding and creating affordable housing inventory. 
and as well, you know, some fabulous and strange homes for sale. I mean, we we recently wrote a story about a very quirky home that looked a little bit like a lighthouse crossed with like a castle um, that had ties to the Muppets and the Grateful Dead. So, I mean, that, of course, who's not going <laughs> to click on that um, as well? You as- say the Muppets and you have my attention. Exactly. But really, you know, too, you look at Hudson and Kingston emerged as the metro locations that experienced the biggest influx of relocations in the country last year. Wow. The average sale price of a single family home in Kingston jumped by almost $100,000 between 2020 and 2021. So that kind of a shift creates incredible strain and also really interesting storytelling and this spring, we'll release a special real estate report that explores latest trends, up and coming towns, and you know the questions you should be asking a realtor to vet the right person for you on your home shopping journey. Wow, that sounds really helpful, I think. Also, the Hudson Valley is kind of a hub for arts and culture and entertainment. Can you talk a little bit about kind of more the feature side of the coverage and how you've shaped it over the last year? Yeah. I mean, culture for us is as much arts as well as identity. And so this beat has been particularly interesting because what we have found is that our readers particularly like hearing about artists as people. Um, They like to hear about their work, but especially how they spend time in region and the things that they do. I thought it was really interesting in January, we wrote a a two-part series on David Bowie's life in the Catskills. As some people might know, he owned a home near Woodstock and his wife, Iman, still splits time there and in the city. And this is a great example of sort of extraordinary people doing ordinary things. We profiled him in two parts. One as the quiet neighbor doing, you know, average Joe things like attending his daughter's birthday party at a local water park. And then the other piece was really about how he made music here and what about the Catskills inspired that artistic journey. And that package was really well received among readers and clearly tells us that it's those types of stories, I think, resonate with them in terms of the relationship between people and place and what comes out of that relationship. Absolutely. That was a magnificent series. Yeah. And I'm a big David Bowie fan too. Yeah, same. It was a nice, it was nice to read about him. So another one of my favorite parts of the Hudson Valley is that it is rife with legends and lore and rich American history. So can you talk a little bit about some of, some of that coverage that you've done? I mean, history is, as you said, it's just such an inherent part of Hudson Valley. And, you know, we continue to try to explore the past while looking forward A couple of stories stand out. I mean, one was a look back at uh, a world-famous bank robber, Max Shinburn, who was called the King of Crooks and was known as a very dapper gentleman thief, a sort of real-life Lupin from Netflix, if you will. And (laughs) his infamous career in the late 1800s really figured prominently in upstate New York, where you know, two sensational events unfolded in Saratoga Springs and Middleburg. And you'll have to read the story, but it was such a delightful exploration of the past. But we found that the audience, particularly as they were watching Lupin, was like really interested in this real life character that was also very polite and very well dressed. So it was really a a lovely um, connection point to streaming. The Hudson Valley, um, in addition to all the wonderful things that you've talked about, is also a place where you would go to travel. There's a lot of travel and tourism that happens there on, you know, year round. So talk about how you approach that. 
Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I always think of Hudson Valley as this like, you know, quaint hotspot in between Albany and New York City, right? So it's like a great destination if you're a local, if you're a weekender, if you're an occasional visitor. I mean, everyone also wants the inside track on an unexpected or a little known gem. So, you know, we've been trying to peel back the layers a little bit and find those those um, undiscovered spots. So whether that's a cannabis speakeasy in Ellenville, a new hot pool in the Catskills, or, you know, the best hiking trails if you hate crowds, we're really trying to mix it up a little bit and find the undiscovered gems in the area for people who are, who want to make a day of it or a weekend. And we focused a lot on on day trips that people can enjoy whether they're whether they're coming from Albany or locally and say New Paltz or driving up from the city. So what are the dozen things to see, do, taste and explore in one distinct place? And so that's really our mantra and our, appro- our approach to covering it. I personally found that extremely valuable and it kind of hit at the right time too, because a lot of us during the pandemic were thinking, oh gosh, we can't, you know, travel as far and wide as we'd like, but you know, this is a great opportunity to get to know things that are, you know, essentially in our backyard or within. Exactly. And, you know, we did a, a feature on, you know, the resorts that have rooms that have their own private entrances, for example, so you wouldn't have to go through a crowded lobby. And so there were, there are a lot of natural alignments during, you know, pandemic social distancing in tourism here that really made it a, um, a natural kind of wellspring of ideas to focus on. Let's talk about the future. Where um, is coverage in the Hudson Valley headed? Like, what do we have to look forward to, you know, without completely spoiling anything? <laughs> well, I think we'll, we will continue on real estate. It's just such a hot topic across the board. It's really hard to afford to live here, right? And it's a very popular area right now, too, for developers. And so we're always going to have our ear to the ground on those proposals for large-scale hotel ventures, condominium ventures, housing projects, and get local reaction to those proposals. I think the small travel, what I like to call small travel, so the day trips, um, I think will continue to be part of our mix going forward. We also know that transportation, as I said earlier, is like really top of mind. So we're keeping our eyes out for stories that blend both travel and transportation. So, you know, road trips, but also if there are changes to highways, Amtrak's train service, for example, how does that impact, one, your daily life, but two, your ability to see and explore the region? And I also think, you know, continued exploration into history and people, through, through always through the lens of people and connecting what we're seeing today um, to the past All right. So folks want to uh, consume all of the excellent content that you're putting out uh, in the Hudson Valley. Um, Where should we direct them? So you can find all of our stuff on social, but also at timesunion.com slash Hudson Valley. And there you'll also find an ability to sign up for our daily newsletter, which is called the Hudson Valley Five, so that you don't miss a headline. I highly recommend it. I am personally a subscriber. Thank you. Good to hear. (laughs) Tracy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. After the break, a handful of local dancers are headed to Northern Ireland for the World Irish Dance Championships this week. We caught up with them before they headed out to compete. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. 
go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Each year, hundreds of dancers from around the world gather to compete in the Olympics of Irish Dancing. That is, the World Irish Dancing Championships. For the last two years, though, it's been canceled due to the pandemic. But this year, they're back on in Belfast, Northern Ireland during the second week of April. Dancers had to qualify to compete at this event, and it's an honor bestowed on only the top 10% of dancers finishing in their respective age categories at qualifiers this season. As it turns out, some of those dancers are local. A handful of students from Capital Region Irish Dance Schools are headed to Belfast to compete. I had the chance to meet three of them before they headed overseas. They're representing the Boland School of Irish Dance in Green Island. So I've admired Irish dance for years, and I'm always excited to watch local dancers as they prance and tap their way down Washington Avenue during Albany's St. Patrick's Day Parade. But honestly, I never quite understood what exactly this dance form entailed until I visited the Boland School's Green Island studio. It's often described as a dance where it's body of ice, feet of fire. Kimberly Stevens is a teacher at the Boland School of Irish Dance. She's been dancing since she was seven, and she's coaching the dancers headed for Worlds. So they don't move their bodies at all. Their, their arms are right by their sides. Um, no upper body movement. And then the feet are moving like crazy, either in the soft shoes with a lot of leaps and jumps, or with the hard shoes where they're making rhythms. If you think that sounds easy, you're wrong. Competitive dancers have to perform several routines, both in hard tap shoes and soft shoes, that are typically around two minutes long. They do slip jigs, hornpipes, and reels, just to name a few of the types. Depending on the level, they can be performing multiple dances in multiple heats for multiple days in a row. That's a lot of dancing. If you get like out of breath by the end of it, it's really, really active. Yeah. yeah, we have to practice stamina a lot here yeah, in order of... to do it without looking like we're dead. 23-year-old Peyton Sawyer of Clifton Park looks anything but when she's dancing. Her precision and lightness of step make it look effortless. She's been doing it since she was four years old. How did you get started? My mom, when she was a child, she Irish danced with all of her siblings and went to Irish, an Irish dance school. And so she really loved it and then got my older sister and I involved here. Sawyer is competing in her second world championship. So the first time I qualified for Worlds was in 2018, and I was able to go the following year um, in North North Carolina. But then I qualified in 2019, but 2020s was canceled. So was 2021. So I've been waiting like two and a half years to go, and I'm just really excited to be able to show how hard I've worked to be on that stage. 11-year-old Kendall Hofer of Waterville is headed to her first Worlds. I'm just excited to get on the stage, and I'm grateful that I get to go at such a young age. The dancers headed out to Belfast this week and will compete over the weekend. Being a competitive athlete myself, 
I was curious, how do they gear up for competition day? 12-year-old Maggie Murphy, who's also going to her first Worlds, explained her routine to me. My normal like competition day, especially Worlds, it's just going to be like I get up, I stretch, I eat a good like healthy breakfast, and then I will get my hair done, then I'll get my makeup done, and then I'll run through my steps, and then I'll just like motivate myself to do the best I can and just be grateful to be on that stage. And of course, I had to ask about their costumes. Can you describe your particular dress? So my dress is red, white, and blue. Very, very appropriate. <laughs> yes, to you know, support America. Um, they have like certain gems on them and the colors that you pick. They're just very like sparkly and they have a bunch of bling on them and they're very colorful colorful and like you just design them to like match you and it's really special. And what exactly are the judges looking for in a jig, a reel, or a hornpipe? Like are they looking for, you know, a certain crispness of step or like what is a what is the the thing that you, you know, focus on the most? So each judge has their own like thing that they're gonna look for, um, whether it be their arms being in, their body being straight, dancers having fun, crossing, turnout, um, execution of steps, sharpness, lifting, um, energy. There's a lot of things. Each judge is looking for their own individual things. So they just have to showcase what they've worked on. I'm looking forward to stepping out that on that stage and showing the judges how hard I've worked over the years. And it's just really grateful and it's really amazing that we could all go. And I think it's just like the thought of that we're going to World Championships is just like so amazing. Head over to timesunion.com to see photos of some of the region's dancers who are headed to Worlds, and also check out our Instagram for a video of the three dancers we just talked to showing off their skills. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler and Tracy Ziemer for their contribution to this episode.